Hello, you're listening to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, presented by Brandon Elliott. This show will be going over all aspects of real estate investing and is intended to educate, motivate, and prepare you to take action on your first or next real estate investment. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome right. back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Brandon Elliott. I am pumped up today and just super excited because we have a special guest, uh, one of my good friends, and he's coming all the way out from Arizona, so not too far, neighborhood state. And, um, you know, he, he's covered so many different avenues when it comes down to investing in real estate. But today we want to really dive into something special. We're going to be covering... Um, how to work with the city and how to actually get them on your side when it comes down to improving the neighborhoods and uh, doing that will dramatically increase the prices in the neighborhood as well as your property and uh, overall just make it a friendlier safer place to invest and you know make it a a great neighborhood um, for your property and other prospecting tenants or people that you plan on selling to so um, you're definitely going to want to you know, stay tuned for this episode. Like always, if you find value in this, make sure you're subscribed on iTunes or any platform that you listen to and uh, go on iTunes, leave a review. And that would mean the world to me. It just helps promote the podcast on iTunes, get, get more people involved and interested to cut off those limited beliefs because we are all about, you know, pushing the podcast to help educate, motivate, and prepare people to take action. So with that being said, Brandon, what's going on, brother? How are you? What's up, man? Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, man. I'm excited. So so yeah, for anybody out there who doesn't know exactly who you are, do you mind just giving a breakdown of you know who you are, where you come from, and what type of experience you have? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, like uh, just a total acknowledgement to you, um, just like all the, all the technology and everything that you're leveraging here to create this podcast is really cool. So, um, really awesome to see you kind of growing and, and creating these connections and in, in real estate and, um, you know, social media and, and technology, it's, it's creating opportunities to kind of amplify and expand business in such a, a quick way. Like it just keeps expanding exponentially. So it's really cool. I've made some amazing connections on social media and that's helped me, um, grow my business and, and uh, also access new opportunities. So uh, a little bit about me, uh, my background, I kind of started, I started out in technology and um, I remember hearing, you know, I was following Grant Cardone for a long time and I remember hearing him say that uh, pretty much the, the three avenues for making money is technology, media, and real estate. And I was always fascinated by real estate, but prior to the, the crash, prior to the, you know, the 2008 uh, financial crisis, you know, real, real estate prices were really high. I was living in Chicago. Um, you know, you're looking at minimum, you know, probably about three, $400,000 for an average home. The taxes were really high. It was very expensive and I didn't know very much. And even today, even with all the experience that I have, I'm still, you know, we're all, we're all learning. So I'm still a novice. I'm not going to say that I'm an, that I'm an expert. I mean, there's guys out there that have done three, four, 500 deals a year. Those guys have the experience. Those guys are experts. I'm not at that level. 
So that's a, that's a fair disclosure, but yeah. I do have a, I do have a lot of experience and I do have a lot of, um, uh, especially unique experience because I've learned from, uh, a lot of investors. I, I studied under Eddie Hassan for a while who was, um, he's out of Florida, but he was, uh, one of the instructors in, in Nouveau Riche prior to, um, prior to, um, Renatus. I don't Renatus. know if you're familiar with Renatus. You've probably had a lot of, of uh, Renatus people on, yeah. um, it's a great, great company. Um, you know, not a shameless plug or anything, but, um, just, uh, kind of a, a little value driven plug. Cause, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of education, uh, companies out there. Um, but so I, I, that's where I started learning how to look at deals, analyze deals. And, uh, once the crash happened, I started looking, I was just looking online. I was working as a web developer. I was, I was looking online and I was seeing real estate I was seeing brand new houses. They were like maybe two or three years old going for like, you know, 70, $80,000 out here in Phoenix. And um, I had some family out here. So I was very interested to, to explore the opportunities and um, things kind of aligned. And I just decided to, 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 to go out. I just decided to leave and take up that opportunity. I bought my first house. It was a 2006 build. I bought it in 2009. It was a three-year-old house. I paid $78,000 for it. Mm. And, um, and that was uh, my first experience with real estate in general. You know, you know, there's a difference between in real estate investing and, and home ownership and just buying property. And so there's a huge difference. Not enough people actually acknowledge that when they say oh, they're yeah. jumping into real estate, you know, they're talking about their first home, a lot of people out there, but the difference is tremendous. Very so big tell, difference. Tell us about that first deal. Yeah. So that first deal was, um, it, look, I knew I was going to make money on it. Um, I bought it. It was an FHA deal. I bought it. I lived in it. Um, I used it, but my whole mindset was, you know, I had read, uh, rich dad, poor dad and some of, some of Robert's other books back in yeah. the day as well prior to this. And so I was kind of prepared, you know, I went into it with an idea of that, you know, yes, it's my primary residence, but at the same time I was looking at that capital gain, but I didn't know much about the market. I didn't know how, how quickly the market would recover. And it actually took me about four or five years before I sold that property and, and got my first profit out of it. So, you know, that took, that, that was a, that was in a, you know, it's a bit of a time frame, right? So it was a bit of a waiting game, but yeah. Um, my mindset was always that it's an investment and I'm renting it from myself. So paying my mortgage, that was me renting it from myself. I had that mindset. Um, because I do agree with, uh, what, what Grant says about, you know, don't rent your primary or don't own your primary residence, you know, own rental property and rent your primary residence. You know, obviously he lives yeah, that's what I do. Yeah. 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 And so, especially if you live in a, a market like, um, you know, California, California or somewhere where it just doesn't make sense to own property in, in, in certain cases. So, but that deal, um, you know, at the same time, I got involved with Nouveau Riche at that time where there's a lot of investors. I was learning a lot about kind of the fundamentals of investing. And, um, you know, I didn't know anything, but I was connecting with people and I was networking with millionaires and I was learning about what they were doing. Um, and I started, uh, I was part of a group where we we're always looking at deals and we we're always kind of um, looking at creative ways to get deals done. So we didn't know it at the time, but there were tons of foreclosures. So we were going after a lot of pre-foreclosures, trying to find uh, motivated sellers. But it's a little bit different uh, strategy in that market because, you know, the prices weren't high. So the profits were still pretty thin. So 
but this is where I learned kind of the basics of wholesaling and the, and the basics of um, a real estate transaction. And I made a, I made a kind of a dumb choice to pursue my real estate license. And the realist, and the reason I say it's a dumb choice is because um, after I put all the time and effort and money into, into, into going that route, I quickly realized that the, the guys who were making all the money were the investors. They were yeah. flipping, they were wholesaling, they were buying, you know, doing buy and holds and rentals. They were doing foreclosures. They were doing creative acquisitions. And those are the, those are the things that most realtors don't know anything about. And, and what they resonate with and almost want to like, that's where they want to be. Right. That they see those down, down the line, you know, doing something like that. They just don't know how to get to that point. I I feel like. Yeah. Everyone's different. I mean, I don't think it's fair to generalize, especially with with realtors in general. I mean, I know some realtors, it's all they do is high end residential and they make tons of money and that's great, but that's a whole different business model than actually being, I've had this thing in my head since I, I ended up working for um, a media company in, um, you know, serving ultra high net worth individuals. That was where, um, you know, I got to go to a lot of events and kind of meet a lot of people. And I, I understood that kind of the, the niche that I wanted to be in was private equity. So when I talk about real estate, for me, it's private equity. It's, it's like, um, it's strictly from an investment standpoint of ownership and management. So whether it's real estate or a business, it's all about uh, ownership and management of the asset not necessarily uh, so much on the, on the acquisition side or the con, you know, all the, all the, you know, creative ways to acquire real estate though. There's so many ways and, and it's, it's very intriguing when we get into it. But um, so that's kind of been my mindset when I got started. So during those times I was looking at, I, I was meeting people, I was networking in all these circles. I would get deals coming. I had a, you know, like big deals, like these kind of like pie in the sky deals. And this is where I started learning a lot about raising money and, and networking and how, uh, how a lot of things are done and kind of how to, how to really qualify your investors and how to qualify uh, deals. Um, like I said, I was learning from Eddie Hassan. He kind of broke away and started doing his own seminars. And I just somehow got in there. I was helping him with some technology stuff and uh, learned a lot about, you know, analyzing cash flow and analyzing deals. And yet I was in these other circles and I would see these deals like these multi-million dollar casino deals and, or, or hotel deals and these really big deals where there's a lot of people involved and you can already t- like, you can tell like when, when there's too many people involved in a deal, it's just, it's not going to work or, um, you know, look, you got to have an investor and maybe a couple principals in a deal like that. It's just, otherwise things can get real muddy real quick. And, um, you know, that just creates liability. So from a business strategy perspective, that's where I started learning about um, some of those larger deals. Now, uh, as I, as I kind of progressed in my interest with my real, with my license, I was doing some conventional deals, you know, just representing buyers here and there. And that's when I was realizing, you know, that, that business it's, it's a service-based business. Um, You know, some people might think that realtors make too much money, um, on certain transactions and that might be true, but for the most part, it's a lot of work. It's a ton of work. There's a lot of work all throughout the year to actually be able to make, you know, what you're actually taking home, um, that whole process. So, and at the end of the day, you know, actually being a realtor, the job is to really educate and give that guidance. So, um, so yeah. And and a lot of people don't want to learn anyways. So yeah, like there's plenty of people who, um, I've given good advice to, and it was sound advice 
but yet they just didn't want to take anyone's advice. So, um, and then, you know, you're wasting your time, you're spending time and investing time with people hoping that they'll buy and you'll make money and whatever. The fact of the matter is a realtor is somebody who gets paid on a transaction, but they don't own or control the transaction. An investor is somebody who makes money on a transaction and they do own or control some sort of interest in the transaction. And so that distinction is so important because uh, I do know a lot of agents who are investors or they work with investors or they function as investors, but the pay structure is different, right? The opportunity is different and the amount of work is different. Um, for instance, I just did a deal that was uh, kind of a wholesale deal. I represented the buyer, um, but you know, with proper disclosures, we can get paid on multiple sides. And I did that with, um, in this instance. And so I saw immediately, you know, if I hadn't had an agreement with my, with my buyer who assigned the contract, he would, he was going to make about 10 grand. I would have made maybe four or 5,000 as an agent, but I was the one doing all the work, following up with all the paperwork, doing all the work with title. It's a yeah. lot of work. It's a That's ton great. of work. And so, so they're making the money. They're yeah. making all the, the investors making all the money. Uh, but they're really, all they're doing is signing the paper and yeah. they have a little bit of cash to back it up. Right. Mm -hmm. So you definitely prefer being more because you're on both, you know, investor and uh, on the realtor side, you, you've been in all different uh, scenes when it comes down to investing um, or in real estate in general, I should say. Absolutely. You, you prefer being on the investor side? A hundred percent. Of course. And, and I've, and I've considered, especially because, you know, look, when, when the time came, I sold that, I sold my first property for um, maybe about a $50,000 profit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, that was, that was uh, the, the nice thing is if the, the, there is a benefit to primary residence, investing with your primary residence, and that is the tax deduction, which is that capital gains up to $250,000 in profit. That, that profit is not taxable. Yeah. Um, so there is a benefit there, but uh, you stay in the property for at least, I think two, two years, years two, two out of five years or three out of five years, something like that. Um, from when you get to sell it. Yeah. And so, and, and that's, a, but there's a distinction, right? Cause I, I also met people who bought their house at the height of the market and then, you know, the crash came and they had to wait for it to recover and it never fully recovered and they're, and they're negative profit. Right. Yeah. So your, your primary residence is not always a, a, is an investment. No, but if you do buy it distressed and then you can live in it, fix it up while you're living there, or you get a multifamily, you live in one unit, rent out the others, or even house hack and rent out some of the other rooms. And, uh, you know, you can really get favorable terms as far as financing goes to have very little money into the deal, you know, get it at that discount rate, fix it up and then sell it for a higher price overall down the road. And like you mentioned, you know, save on taxes, which is awesome strategies, just getting creative, thinking outside the box, which is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I would say, uh, so another deal that I did, this was, this was a, a while back, but, um, this was kind of unique. I mean, we technically got paid as agents, but really the reason that we were able to bring the deal together was because we brought the funding and we brought the money. And how that worked was we had a developer who had, I think it was 21 townhomes. The development, half of the development was done. The other half got foreclosed on by the bank and the developer wanted to raise money to, to basically take it back from the bank and start over. So we, um, you know, we connected him with uh, one of our contacts and hard money. He got a hard money loan and was able to take down that, take the property down uh, back from the bank. And so we, and we represented the transactions individually that was, that had kind of some of its own quirks. We yeah. had to, um, 
uh, but we got paid on each on each of the individual sales kind of yeah. into in one and it was done as one transaction um, so kind of stepping away from uh you know as the realtor side but more towards investing um you know what kind of struggles have, have you come across possibly when it sure. comes to the, the question done Great question. So um, one of my biggest, kind of my biggest learning experience um, in that time, I was networking with a lot of millionaires. We, um, I was kind of, I was part of a group and that's why I say when there's a lot of people involved um, and, and you know, especially when people are not experienced, right? It's really important to qualify the people you're investing with and working with. Um, obviously that goes without saying, but uh, you know, to me then I was very young and, and naive. And so, um, I invested some money. It was credit based. I invested some money with, um, with kind of a syndicate, a private syndicate that was buying a large multifamily. And to be honest with you, I don't know if the, you know, this, this individual was just, was either a, you know, kind of a, a, a con artist and a crook or a, or just really dumb. But we, we did at one point, I think it was a, uh, I want to say it was a 39 unit complex that we owned maybe a little bigger, it may have been 50 plus units. We owned it um, uh, temporarily, but I don't, I wasn't involved in the deal and the, and the transaction and the contract. So I don't really know what happened, but if, uh, somehow the bank took it back and they lost the money. And um, you know, I got, I got screwed out of some money and my, you know, the biggest part of that, that, that killed me, it basically set me back in my whole investing career, if you will, is that my credit got destroyed, you know, as a result of that. And, and so that was a big setback because it, kind of set me back from being able to, you know, leverage, um, leverage personal finance and, and acquire more property. And so, um, so let me, let me just clarify just to understand the aspect of it. So it was kind of almost like a syndication that you're putting up money, a part of, uh, with other individuals that this one individual, he ended up was he with these funds he was purchasing a 39 unit complex yeah the idea was we would pool our our money and and um you know credit based financing to to buy multifamily but okay um looking back on it there were too many people involved putting money in and um you know he had very little experience uh purchasing and managing multifamily and so okay and what I guess maybe uh, some learning curves attached to that, obviously, it was, you know, really no like and trust the people that you're truly dealing with, along with the experience behind it when it comes down to these big things. Absolutely. Um, track and, record. Track record is huge. Yeah. Um, and research. You're, you were only putting uh, just credit up at the time? Well, I mean, you know, the money came off of credit, you know, it was basically he, they had ways to you know, there are different ways through credit brokers and things like that to get a lot of lines of credit. And so that was kind of the, the, the way that that happened. And then, yeah, yeah. I've, um, I've leveraged credit uh, tremendously. Uh, for And it's uh, great if you control your deals. Yeah. Uh, but those are, those are just mistakes. Those are, they're novice mistakes. And honestly, um, you know, yeah, obviously I, I mean, that's a, that's a total novice mistake. And so, but without that learning experience, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, sometimes you pay your dues that way. Yeah. So how long did that one take you to kind of bounce back? That took me a while. I mean, you know, my, I mean, you know, you, if you take a hit on your credit, that'll, that'll, that'll last seven years. That didn't necessarily stop me from doing other real estate deals, but for doing my own acquisitions, that was, that was pretty tough. I mean, it took me a while to uh, be able to get into uh, another property. And then eventually I did, I yeah. leveraged it and got into a, a multifamily, um, 
you know, in that process though, with family and friends, we were, we were buying and flipping houses mostly in Arizona, but we also had one, um, you know, my parents and I worked on a deal in, in Florida, which was a, I, I couldn't actually couldn't believe it. I, it was, it was kind of risky, but, um, they bought a house in winter park. And if you don't, if you know anything about the Orlando area, winter park is, is kind of like a really, so it's a really nice area. They bought a house there for about, uh, I think, I think the cash total was like 26,000 and within a couple of years, it was worth well over a hundred. And so that was a, that was a solid, uh, good time to jump in. Yeah. yeah. And was that just natural from, uh, you know, appreciation in the area rising? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Let's kind of switch over into that because I know in the beginning, you know, before we hopped on, we were talking about um, how that is naturally actually working in some of the, the neighborhoods that you're starting to um, invest in, which yeah. kind of covers the topic of, you know, what we want to dive into in this, uh, in this episode with, you know, working with the city and getting them on your side to be able to start improving the neighborhood. Yeah. You know, perfect. So, yeah. So what kind of, what kind of deals are you working on currently to be able to do that? So here's, here's what I did um, in the beginning of the year. Now this is really interesting. So I learned so much from this and I have uh, even my property manager, he owns, he manages 300 doors. And uh, I think uh, maybe a quarter of them he owns himself outright mm -hmm. um, because he had, he had started and he's, he's, uh, he has a lot of experience. He's kind of been my mentor and he, um, and, and even some of the stuff I was educating him on, he, he didn't, he hadn't used to uh, before. And so depending on what city you're investing in, you know, Phoenix is amazing. Phoenix, I can tell you, I, I can't speak so much for other cities, but I know that the uh, programs that a lot of cities have are relatively similar. Um, so here's how that happened. I was, you know, so as I bounced back from that whole credit thing, right, I was, I've been looking, my eyes were out. I was looking for the right deal to pounce on. And um, I, I had, I was taking my time, you know, I wasn't rushing into it. And uh, this deal came across that I found. It was a triplex in, um, in a very transitional area in Phoenix. Now, if you know anything about Phoenix in the last three or four years, that kind of that area of like uh, Arcadia built more, um, it, it went, it was a very depressed area during the, during the crash, but it's a very in-demand location. The location is very important because Phoenix is, is shaped in a way where you know you have to be centrally located to be able to get anywhere in a short amount of time otherwise you have to kind of drive in this loop around the city and so those areas started popping up real fast with a lot of flips i mean there was just tons and tons and tons of, of money going in and flips kind of from south scottsdale to arcadia to kind of south biltmore area and i found this deal it was a triplex in um kind of like uh, 16th street and indian school area and this is and in the beginning of the year this is in the beginning of 2018. Yeah. Okay. And um, historically now there's also a canal, the Phoenix canal, which is basically, you know, uh, within the past 10 years from that, you know, from that crash up until this point, it, it was basically, you know, just, uh, just rife with crime. I mean, there was, I mean, there were murders, there were, uh, I mean, uh, all sorts of crime. I mean, just, I mean, even, even uh, within, you know, last year, I would hear people telling me about gunshots and things. And the, and the reason is that canal, it kind of connects uh, West Phoenix all the way out into Tempe. And, it, and, and it's, a, it's, it's a convenient way by foot or bike for people to travel uh, without, um, 
you know, without needing a car. And so that it presented its own issues. Now the city just got a $10 million grant from the federal government to improve that. And so, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't necessarily know this at the time, but I knew that the location that this triplex was in was right in the middle of two really important zones. And the first zone was that Biltmore Arcadia zone that I talked about before, where the, where those properties went from you know two hundred thousand to four or five hundred thousand in like the span of three to three or four years. Like the 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 uh, the market price just just astronomical. I mean, it just it just flew astronomically. Now the other side was the Central Corridor, which between Seventh Avenue and Seventh Street and Central in downtown Phoenix, there's been over two billion dollars in investment, in real estate uh, investment, in the last few years. Um, just um, there's a, an old mall from the '50s that a developer bought and totally revamped it, and um, uh, there's been a lot of approvals for new housing. So I knew that the location was it was only a matter of time. And going into it, now there were some properties around this triplex, and, and I didn't think too much about it, but there were some properties around here that were real suspect, right? I mean, just like broken down cars outside, just junk everywhere. Okay. And, so and you, I, you, you had a feeling kind of about the zoning and, and the location in general that it could potentially be going up in the next few years? Yeah, and, and here's what happened. And actually what happened, and I'll go, and I'll go into that, but um, actually what happened... Um, I bought it in the beginning of the year and then as time progressed and it's not just from me but there were a couple properties that got flipped in the neighborhood there were a couple sales that happened my comp shot up almost $80,000 in the span of about three to four months so it was just in that perfect timing that that zone of perfect timing where um, the, the push from both sides of all this development and all this change and all it's gentrification, but where all of it came kind of converged. And so I was just like right in this zone. And when I first, and this is from other investors kind of just improving the properties and I guess the market in general, people buying yes. those remodeled properties for these higher numbers developers, investors, flippers, okay. a lot of those. Yeah, there's so, so let's talk about the deals on this triplex. Like what what did the numbers look like? How did you actually get this lead? And um, you know, did you get yeah. creative when it comes down to funding it? Yeah, so um yeah, this was really creative. This is a this actually this deal was a home run. So um <laughs> this is a so here's what happened. I actually found this deal on MLS and I looked at it. I think they were asking maybe 220-ish. And uh, I didn't want to negotiate too hard because I was going in with a conventional loan. The market was real competitive. I think I ended up getting it for around 210. Um, but but um, it was FHA. So what I did was uh, I bought it. There was a third unit that's kind of like a, a little house almost, uh, which is nice because there's there was no neighbors behind. And then it had a really big yard. So it actually worked out pretty well. Um, the structure of the deal, I paid 210 for it. I bought it FHA and then also because I'm licensed, I self, I self represented. So all in all, in the end, it really came out to being about a thousand dollars out of pocket to take this property down. Okay. Yeah. Now with FHA, uh, it's typically about 3% down, um, three and a half percent down. So I paid about seven grand down and then I got, you know, a big portion yeah, of that back. back, back. Okay. Yeah. And then you, so you had to live in one of those units. Yeah, so I occupy one unit um, currently. Yeah, until probably next April. 
but actually, I mean, it actually turned out because, and I'll go into the details on the neighborhood and the things that have changed over in such a short period of time. It's actually, it, you know, maybe I might consider staying longer because of the convenience, but um, okay. what happened was I started realizing there was a lot of zoning. There was a couple zoning hearings. So, um, and this is a historically really, really bad part of Phoenix, but it's close to the freeway. It's close to um, kind of, uh, you know, a lot of shopping centers like yeah. 24th Street and Camelback, very, you know, kind of a really, a really hot up and coming area. So nice. Um, when I bought the property, um, I'm sure you've interviewed people about problem tenants. This property would have had the biggest problem tenant in the world. Uh, this lady was a nightmare. I mean, she had, you know, I mean, av average tenant who receives an eviction notice in any standard uh, sense of terms, right? I mean, just so uh, so correct. It, correct me. So it is three units, and there was one tenant that came with this property. Um, well, there were three, but prior to prior to taking the property over, there was an eviction that I inherited. So basically, I had to I had to they had filed every everything up to the to the paperwork. Other than when I took ownership of the property, that eviction was being served. So so, so all three units were occupied, and uh, there were eviction notices on all three. No, only on, only on one. Okay, so the other two ended up moving out before you actually took over. No, they stayed. I, I, I let them stay because, um, you know, I raised, I raised the rent to kind of get it to a, a favorable position. And, and then which, which unit did you take over? Cause the, you, the one that was the one that we ran the eviction through. So that was, okay. So, and, um, so there was the, the financing behind that, they actually FHA, they let you do that without actually like closing on it without fully moving into it first. Well, yeah, because the eviction was filed. So, okay. Yeah, no, you have 60 days to occupy once you close on FHA. Gotcha. Obviously, obviously, you know, um, okay. Yeah, there's a, there's a, you have 60 days to occupy. Gotcha. Okay. So in that time frame, we took care of all sorts of stuff. I mean, I, I got really lucky actually. My neighbor ended up being a, a contractor. Yeah. So he helped me with uh, just a huge portion of the work for cool. very cheap. But I mean, this, this property was a lot of work. I mean, I was literally, I mean, day and night, I was, I was kind of, there was a lot of work that went into it. So you're putting in own sweat equity as well as, you know, a neighbor relationship built that social, you know, capital, uh, that, you know, relationships. Okay. A hundred percent. And then he's somebody who, you know, we, we have a relationship with now who we can work with in the future. He does quality work. That's great. And, you know, like he charges a hundred bucks to replace the carpet. You know, I bought the materials. I mean, you, where can you yeah. be? That? I mean, that's like, no, you can't. No. And he did good work. So I love it. Now with, um, if you don't mind me asking what type of, you know, budget or how much money did you put into making this place kind of nice again? Yeah. Um, I haven't tallied everything up, but maybe, maybe, maybe $3,000. So very tight budget, very tight budget, but, um, incredible. The transformation was incredible. Um, I'm about to invest a little bit more and get some of the stuff on the external property done. So maybe when it's all said and done, I'll have put another $5,000 into it. Okay. Uh, but I mean, just the transformation of the property was incredible. The first part was when you're dealing with an eviction, the, there's a lot of garbage, there's a lot of junk. And luckily we, you know, we eventually got this, 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 this person and all the, all their stuff out of the property. Um, but then there was just a big mess to clean up. I mean, 
we had to go through the gamut. I mean, have the air ducts clean, have the, uh, I, and I wanted things done right too. So, uh, you know, we refaced the cabinets. Uh, we, uh, you know, I changed out uh, some of the, the countertops and uh, just recently got new appliances. We did the, um, the walls were big too. The first thing that we did was we, um, you know, we retextured the walls um, because I mean, this lady had just destroyed the place. I mean, you wouldn't believe how much the walls were just covered head to toe with, with junk. How, how long uh, was she a hoarder, I guess? And how long did she yeah. live there? She lived there for a, for a while. I'm not sure exactly, but years. Okay. And um, she was a hoarder? Uh, not just a hoarder, but, um, you know, uh, you know, unemployed, um, you know, they, they weren't taking advantage of the, of the old owner. I mean, it was very clear that they were taking advantage of the old owner. She was an elderly lady. She didn't really know. She was just in her mind, maybe she was helping these people out, but, um, yeah, yeah, they were just, I mean, they were just part of the whole problem in the neighborhood. And so, okay. So now, um, it sounds like you, for $3,000 that I guess most of that was just set, you know, sweat equity, uh, that you're really putting into it to 3000, 3000. Yeah. yeah. To, to really start changing this place around. So after you're starting to make it nice, um, how are you in, working with the city to actually start improving the neighborhood? Yeah. So this was, this is where I started learning a lot. And Phoenix is great because they have so many programs. They okay. have, they have landlord tenant programs. They have programs where they'll educate, uh, landlords they'll work with you they'll help you learn how to work with tenants um yeah i believe every city does so definitely if, if anybody is going through any chaos with any tenants or neighborhoods in the ge in general um definitely you know educate yourself with the city ask those questions go down there in person or give a call uh or even on the website of you know your local county yeah and we, and we built relationships with a, a lot of uh, neighbors in in the in the region and so we're in the process of filing for like a block watch so we actually work with um, work with the city on on a on a on a bigger level um but even without going that in depth you know neighborhood services there's all sorts of things that they handle i mean from graffiti to uh broken down vehicles to um uh, you know, people who leave their trash outside. I mean, just all these, all these little things. I mean, so I started going around the neighborhood and, and looking at, you know, where are the problems? And I started just submitting requests and, you know, it's anonymous. There's not, uh, you know, there's, there's not much tag to it other than the fact that once you notify the city, they'll have somebody investigated and, and uh, either, you know, they, they take care of it. I mean, they issue citations and things like that. Now here's something. You get notified afterwards that like something's been done or you're just keeping it it's eye on. It's, it's you for that, for Phoenix, it's on the website. So you could just log in and check the address and see what was done. Okay. Um, and so it's really convenient. Um, and here's an example so this lady, she was a hoarder and, and we had issues with her trespassing, coming back to the property for weeks. Um, I mean, she had so much junk and so much garbage and, and um, she was just, uh, she was, she was terrorizing the neighborhood in a way. Uh, if I could say that, I mean, she really was, at least for me. I mean, I was feeling like she was just terrorizing me and, and the whole property. But what happened was I, I knew some of the junk that she had because she had so much and some of it was so bizarre. But I, I was driving the neighborhood one day and I noticed that a bunch of her junk was outside of another property a, a block away. And so I skip traced the owner of that property and, and we found out, you know, who is, who's, who owns it, right? I had a couple conversations with him and said, hey, are you interested in maybe selling? Um, you know, here I have, uh, there's, there's potentially some issues with, 
um, you know, hey, here's this person. Uh, I know about her. She could be causing some problems. It looks like maybe she's uh, squatting there or I don't know. You know, he didn't have, uh, you know, the best tenants in the world there either. But uh, I ended up getting a deal out of that. And uh, initially I got a listing, but uh, he, he ended up canceling and wanted to list it with a different agent. But I was determined to get the property turned over. Uh, because it was, uh, to me, there's maybe three or four trouble properties in the neighborhood that were, you know, that they, they fit the description of what the city terms blight, which is like, you know, just dilapidated fences, broken down vehicles, uh, you know, really bad paint jobs, just deteriorating uh, property, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it, curb appeal, no curb appeal, right? Like negative curb appeal actually is what I would call it. So I got a, so I got a, uh, a deal out of this and we ended up wholesaling it eventually. Uh, that, that deal took a great deal of time to find the right buyer for it. Um, you know, but in the process. How, how did, if you don't mind me asking, how did you market that property? I know it took a while, but uh, what did that time frame look like when it came down to wholesaling it? How did you structure that wholesale and like yeah. with the with the seller and uh, to be able to buy you that extra time and who was the end person you know where did you find that that person yeah so um, honestly so the, the the buyer I found in my network so that's the other thing is through my years and my time in networking I've built in a massive network of of buyers and investors and so I know a lot of people in, in the valley that um, are in this business and so um, you know Again, I'm I'm just kind of like a, a novice compared to some of them, and then you know I have I have uh, some years of experience on some of the other ones. So it's just it's 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 all relative, right? And um, and how much time you put into uh, your business, but yeah. So working with the with the seller, uh, how how long? Like, how did you write up that contract to be able to buy you time? How long was it till you actually found that end buyer to purchase? So the thing with that seller was he wanted more than the property was worth. So they had it on MLS. And I don't think they were getting any bites on it because it was just, I mean, he was just asking too much for it and he was very tough to negotiate with. He didn't want to take a certain amount, but I think after uh, a couple failed transactions um, and probably a little frustration on his part, we eventually negotiated him down on numbers and um, I was just marketing it to different people in my network and eventually found somebody who had a buyer who um, fit the criteria. So we, we put it under contract and then it was an assignment contract. So we took the property, you know, we, we did an assignment on it essentially. And um, I was representing the buyer and my buyer assigned it to his investor. And so eventually, eventually it worked out. And so they're going to invest a whole bunch of money in that property and they're going to turn it around. And then um, it's going to be, and the other thing is that that neighborhood is in a really desirable school district. So the problem historically was there was a property across the street from this duplex that we wholesaled, which was like a, a rehab center, a drug and alcohol rehab center. Mm -hmm. And that contributed to it. There was just a lot of transients and, and uh, uh, what my neighbor, she would call them vagabonds. They would just wander up and down the street and up and down the canal. And it just caused a lot of problems. And so that property eventually shut down and another developer bought it. It was, a, it was the largest land transaction in, in 30 years in Phoenix that just closed this year, 7.7 .7 acres. Um, and they're just going through demo on it. And so they're going to build a, you know, kind of like a mid grade apartment complex on it. And that's going to, that's going to change the, you know, that it's going to drastically change the desirability of, of that neighborhood. Uh, and so I still, I think the investor who bought this duplex really got in at a great time and they really got a great deal because, uh, that's going to cause a, that's going to drive up the rent costs. 
because mm -hmm. the new developments, you know, new developments, the cost of renting from those types of properties are really high. And so those lower end investments, uh, uh, so those lower end rental properties are in higher demand because you know, not everybody can afford to pay 12, 1500 bucks a month to live in a, a nicer apartment. Sometimes, you know, people have to rent, you know, $800 a month or yeah. 700, you know, so, um, but overall it just improved the neighborhood. Cool. So, um, so going back kind of like a step-by-step -step kind of breakdown, um, with working with the city and really making these improvements, I guess we could first kind of like number one, really identifying, taking a, an inventory of the neighborhood. What are some of the, the, the negative curb appeal, uh, acts writing yeah. things down, like the graffiti, the, the trash, you know, which neighborhoods or which properties in general. And then I guess number two, would be to really uh, connect with the city, either in person, by phone, uh, internet. There's you know reliable sources that you can be anonymous, yeah. um, and and submit these complaints to to get you know investigated yeah. and, and start making that transformation. And then three, just kind of keeping an eye on things and making sure those things are actually uh, you know coming. Uh, yeah, they're, they're getting taken care of. Taken care of. So the city of Phoenix is great because, um, and they have in the neighborhood services department, if you, if you look that up, they define common, it's called common blight violations. And so they define that as vegetation, right? So if there's a property where there's overgrown weeds, right? That's, that's a violation of city code. So if you have a neighbor in the house, you know, we, there was, a, for example, there's a house uh, in the neighborhood that's been abandoned. It looks like an investor took it down and something happened and the property's been abandoned. We tried skip tracing it. Nobody could, nobody could get in touch with anybody. You know, the weeds were overgrown like you wouldn't believe. I mean, literally half, half as, as tall as me. Yeah. Um, and it defines, so it defines all these different blight violations, vegetation, inoperable vehicles, uh, junk, litter, debris, vacant and accessible structures, outside storage, fences in disrepair, uh, non-dustproof parking and graffiti. And so all those blight violations are things that when you drive into a neighborhood and you see those things and say you own property or you've invested in property, you can, you can submit those, those claims to the city, basically send them a picture and say, Hey, here's a blight violation. Here's the address. Can you guys look into it? And they'll send somebody out to, to, to deal with it. And so um, it's a beautiful thing because the, the, they're really proactive about um, about doing that. Yeah. And so very quickly, we we took care of some pervasive issues, and there's and there's other issues in in neighborhoods. You know, like uh, when there's properties with excessive traffic, right? Yeah. Um, we have people coming and going. I mean, we can we can maybe make some presumptions about what's going on there, but um, those are those are types of now. So, and I and I do have that pro that problem in the neighborhood. Um, and aside from working with the police department, we have to uh, also work with the owners. And so I skip trace that owner and I've been in conversation with her. And sometimes, you know, people, they're just, they don't want to deal with their problems or maybe they're, you know, they have reasons for wanting to, you know, continue keeping bad tenants. But I can tell you this, there, there is that situation that, you know, it's going to end in one or two, one of two ways. It's either going to become a legal dispute that goes to court and that I'm going to pay out of pocket for, or it's going to be, um, uh, become a, a criminal issue that has to get dealt with through a block watch program and through working with neighborhood services and the police department. And yeah. so that's why it's important to establish those relationships as well. But, um, 
all those, all those opportunities exist. And then there's also actually grant money. So in Phoenix, if you get an approved block watch, you can actually get money from the city to take care of some of those uh, violations. Like if somebody has a fence that needs to be repaired and it impacts the safety of the neighborhood, you can get money from the city to fix those up rather than paying for it yourself. And so I those love are, it. yeah. Now, now how do you, how do you go about that uh, process? I guess just yeah, contact that, the city and ask what, the the government grants and how does that work you have to get so th there's a program for it and so once you're approved as a block watch you can actually apply for a grant and then every item that you want to get grant money for you have to submit a request and the and the city will fund it based on those requests i love it okay yeah. so that's great information just you know ask your local city if you know you're running into this situation any dis uh distressed neighborhoods you can always ask them what type of programs they have available that that offer something similar uh, with government funding to be able to repair some of the, yeah. the negative aspects, the eyesores in the area. Yeah, something unique, I believe that that you do when it comes down that I've that I've heard recently um, that you've been doing is you know if you personally can't necessarily like change the aspect of, you know, su submitting the request and, and getting things taken care of. Um, you know, you're skip tracing. So you're skip tracing, figuring out who the owner is and then seeing if you can personally buy it or wholesale it or, uh, you know, whatever it may be to be able to you personally taking control of the property and absolutely and getting out the negative stuff yourself. Um, and look, when you, and when you know a neighborhood that well too, yeah, I mean, you just turn it into your own little game of Monopoly, and that's what yeah. I did. That's what I did because, look, if, they're, if the owner's not going to fix the issue, I'm going to find a way either to help them. Um, you know, in, in the case of the duplex, he's just like, look, they're paying rent. I can't really do anything about it. It's my, it's my mother's investment, and I don't really have time to deal with it. Okay, great. Um, do you want to sell it? Sure, but this is how much I want. Well, let's see how much we can get you, right? And eventually, we made a deal, and so what's going to happen is that and, – and believe me, with this property – when we walked on it, I thought my property was bad. But when I walked that duplex, I mean, it was piled to the, I'm talking about outside. I don't know if these guys were, they, they obviously weren't, you know, they, I don't know how they had incomes or what, but they obviously didn't have jobs. They were very apparently, um, you know, uh, I don't know, politically correct way to say this, but, you know, they were definitely not sober. Um, they had bikes and junk piled like eight feet high inside the backyard. I mean, so wow. I don't know. If, yeah. So it's just like yeah, crazy stuff, you know? So yeah. how, how are you personally skip tracing to figure out the information to be able to find uh, the, the current homeowner, figure out their situation and how you can, you know, either get them to help improve it or you can get them out of the situation so you can start taking control of it. Sure. So uh, without going into like uh, full on skip tracing, uh, the easiest ways are to uh, search, search the recorder's office, find out what, find out the names of people. And then I, this, this deal I actually skip traced to Facebook. So I use that to find that person on Facebook and I sent them a message and, uh, and then they responded, they called me. So that tended to work, you know, and then in some cases you can hire somebody in, in the extreme cases where you can't get a hold of anybody and they can do kind of more in depth, uh, trying to find phone numbers and stuff like that. But I, I feel like it. with the internet, social media, it's easy enough to get to find people and get in touch with them. Yeah, no, I love it. It's so true. Well, that's great. I mean, that, that's a, late, a lot of great knowledge right there, uh, to be able to help somebody that could potentially be going through, 
um, some chaos with either their, their tenants or in a distressed neighborhood and really want to start improving it to, to make their property value go up, you know, to, yeah. to more opportunities in the future. So that's awesome. Yeah. And the final point there too, is, um, what I did like, uh, with this, uh, there's another trouble property that I told you, there's a lot of traffic coming and yeah. going. There's some, you know, uh, activity there that we're, that, that we're questioning. Um, and you know, that owner is not very cooperative, right? She doesn't want to deal with it. She just, she doesn't either, either she's, either she knows about it and she doesn't want to deal with it. Or I, I don't really know why, but, um, you know, at one point she expressed interest in, in being able to sell it. So what I did was I created a Get money paid back to her from the, from the dealings going on. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's possible, right? I mean, I can't accuse her of that, but it's, it's certainly yeah, yeah. to me, it's not out of the question because why else, why would you want tenants like that? If you know, the, and check if someone's been in a property for 10 years, like you need to evaluate your market rents. I mean, you should evaluate market rents every year in your property. You know, yeah, that, that's what a savvy investor would do. But people that don't want to deal with all the chaos or problems, maybe they had a lot of issues in the past with getting it rented and they don't want to yeah. deal with that again. So as long as the money's coming in every month, they get used to that. And that yeah. comfort zone is what keep, keeps people, you know, in, in the right aspects, running yeah. away from problems. Totally. Yeah. And then, you know, in, in those extreme issues too, the city, there are procedures to work with the city to deal with those owners. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of, look, once you buy property in a neighborhood and you like the, if you like the area and, the, and you see trends upwards, you, there's a lot you can do to actually actively uh, improve your investment through, through all these avenues that we've talked about. And it's going to be a wise thing to do. I love it. Yeah. I mean, this, this right here has uh, definitely motivated me to, and inspired me in several different ways to really connect with my, you know, the area that I invest in over in Ohio to, uh, to really figure out with the city, you know, what can be done in certain neighborhoods to really start changing it around for the better. Um, yeah, so. well, and you own a number of properties too, right? So if you look, I mean, if you present to the city that you own X amount of properties and yeah. that you want to help and contribute, in most cases, they're going to welcome your help because, oh, yeah. you know, in Phoenix, the you know, the, like police force and all, and, and the city, and I mean, their they're demand, the demand on their time is so crazy. They're very understaffed. They need the help. Of course, yeah. 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 I love it. Any final thoughts? Cause I, I know, uh, you know, think, you're a busy man. You got a lot of things to do. Yeah. I think, I think, um, I think those are the final thoughts there. I mean, I yeah. think that's it. And the other thing is build a network because the way that I was able to get this property sold was that once I found the seller, I was able to connect the buyer as well. And so that's, there's this guarantee that you're going to get paid. If you have the buyer and the seller, you're at least going to get paid on one side, right? And make sure everything oh, disclosed and done legally as well. That's yeah. Um, Relationship capital is so, so important to really build your, your network of people um, and, and really branch out. So that's awesome. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And the final thought is um, do your best to follow the, follow things by the book, have integrity with uh, the rules and the regulations and the laws and everything that, you know, surrounding, you know, we're held to, you know, look, I mean, we have licenses or if you're an investor or if you're, you know, you just consider yourself a, a, a person of value and you're an investing, um, you know, you're held to a higher standard. And so that's my final thought is um, do everything you can to, to kind of uh, grow into those standards, whatever they are. That's so true. How you do one thing is how you do everything, in my opinion. So it, it's very, very true. I love yes. it, brother. Well, uh, I appreciate you so much. A lot of great knowledge on here. It, you know, how can people get a hold of you? Um, I say Facebook would cool. be the, would be the best way. Uh, my group strategic growth experts, it's really more, it's really just a kind of a, a business mastermind. 
you know, I, I like, I want people to share ideas and, and contribute to each other. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I have another group too that uh, I've been building, which is strictly around cash flow properties where people can submit their deals. I think uh, it's cash flow property investors on Facebook. So those would be the, the two, the best ways. Very good. Awesome. Cool. Well, uh, is there anything that, you know, the, any of the listeners could do to give back to you? Um, I mean, if you have deals, send me deals or if you, if you have, uh, <laughs> um, always looking for, you know, partners, uh, equity partners, um, you know, but you know, pro provided that you're connected or that, you know, you've been introduced by a friend or, or some other relationship. Um, obviously that's something that you have to be careful cold sourcing, uh, investors for that. That's not something that I do. I have to know everybody who, who comes in that way. So very good. Yeah. yeah. Well, Brandon, I appreciate you, brother. Nothing but great knowledge. So, uh, I know, you know, your experience will definitely go a long way with helping any of the listeners, Absolutely. Uh, you know, with help connecting with the city, figuring out all the different programs available to really start changing around the neighborhood and, and improve it. Uh, for the better, which is awesome and, uh, and solving yeah. problems. So with that being said, guys, I appreciate you all for listening. If um, you can always get a hold of me through brandonelliotinvestments.com, uh, anywhere on social media, uh, Brandon Elliott Investments on Instagram, and then on Facebook, it is facebook.com slash Brandon Elliott REI. So uh, if you have any questions, love to connect with new people on a regular basis. Um, so don't be shy. Also make sure if you found value in this, make sure you share it out to people and, uh, you know, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. That truly would mean the world to me. It really just helps, you know, with the algorithms with iTunes, promote it to more people, letting it know that it is a good podcast. And, um, you know, my whole goal of getting it in front of a million people to help educate them, motivate them and prepare them to take action uh, you know, that, that will just cutting off those lim those limitations in your mind and, you know, really being able to create a difference, not just in your world, but in your family with financial freedom through real estate is, is my passion. So with that being said, nothing but love for you guys till next time. Stay blessed. This has been another episode of Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining. Until next time, God bless.